What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. Uh, we're, we're back to, you know, another show in the, uh, the Joe Biden presidency era. And I think we're still getting our, you know, sea legs, what the dynamics of that are. I mean, it's pretty clear it's better than the, than the, than the, what is it? What I, you know, I need to find out, I, I have been seeing everybody, you, this has clearly become like a catchphrase, almost like a meme with the former guy. And, and like, I, and I still haven't found out where that, where that comes from. That's the way people are, someone clearly said that about President Trump. Uh, but lots to talk about. We have, um, Kind of fast and out of nowhere, the governor of New York, who has been a insanely dominant force in New York politics for for a decade, uh, and you know uh, was kind of like a national media star this spring because of COVID, and even I mean that was like the tempting fate thing, the writing a book, you know, kind of a quickie book like the wisdom of COVID from Andrew Cuomo. Out now from HarperCollins, uh, it, and you know, just very rapid. There have I, I believe been three accus- uh, accusers who've stepped forward. Two are are, are workplace uh, accusations of of harassment, inappropriate comments, etc. Another, I believe, at a wedding. So not a workplace situation, but but a common set of behaviors kind of fitting a pattern and suddenly a i mean if you would have told me as recently as god i don't know 10 days ago that that andrew cuomo might not complete his his term of office that would have been like a a joke i mean just absurd uh and it's a funny thing because andrew cuomo uh, who's been in our politics for, I mean, in some ways for like 40 years, but as a kind of a, a, a well-known in front of the camera person for a good, you know, for almost 30 years, back to the Clinton administration, has had this very uh, paradoxical hold over New York politics in the sense that, I mean, he, he, he is in his third term as governor, outdid his dad, as you know, a, a gubernatorial success, he has been totally dominant. I mean, n- n- the Republicans who who are put up against him are sort of these like sacrificial idiots. I mean, they're, you know, the Republicans have barely even challenged him, and uh, there have been attempts to you know primary him from the left, but they've been they've totally failed in 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 electoral terms, and yet at least in the political and journalistic class, everybody hates Andrew Cuomo. I mean, no one likes the guy. Everybody despises him. And that is certainly not the most important part of this current scandal, but it is definitely a part. This isn't a case where a lot of people are kind of, you know, 
conflicted and brokenhearted and kind of, you know, he's got to go, but I hate to see this happen. He's done so much. Everybody hates this guy. And now, important to say, in, 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 in the way that matters most, you can't say that for the voters of the state. He's, he's won handily again and again. So we're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about uh, yet another hearing uh, that's that's going on into um, you know into the January sixth insurrection, and and uh, you know trying to still trying to get to the bottom of that. And I guess we're going to talk about miscellaneous stuff about like you know just bullshit about Ted Cruz and just all sorts of other stuff going on. And one thing I, I will say in the non like Ted Cruz uh, 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 bullshit category. We seem to be getting good news on the vaccine front. We've known for a few months now that we have vaccines that really work, which is fantastic. Uh, it has been a lot less clear. I mean, and even even this isn't defending the government, but it is worth stepping back and thinking about how quickly can you get two shots into the arms of 330 million people? I mean, we've talked a lot about governmental incompetence and stuff, and there's been a, so much of it this year. It's, it's, it is infuriating and heartbreaking. But, I mean, that is a hell of a challenge, a hell of a challenge, uh, even if you don't have a completely fragmented healthcare system. And, and the bigger challenge is, and this is, this is something that I think we're going to be talking about more and more, there are all sorts of obvious good and not good reasons why, why obviously, the, the, the American government is going to prioritize American citizens and American residents. But one of the things we have seen in the last two or three months is the fact that if COVID keeps, if, even if everybody is, is, you know, and a lot of people are vaccinated here, if it keeps circulating around the globe, it will keep evolving and eventually it'll outwit the vaccines. So we really do have to get everybody on the globe vaccinated. And that is what, like 8 billion people, 7 billion people? I lose track. It was, you know, kind of uh, lower when I was a kid. But I mean, it's a ton of people. And a lot of people live in very poor countries where the the infrastructure isn't there. Anyway, all this kind of stuff we're talking about. Uh, before we get to that, let me quickly remind you that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. It's made from a special blend of 100% Arabica beans, French chicory, and signature spices and brewed overnight. To give you a velvety smooth cup, you can drink iced, hot, or spiked in a cocktail, you know, any 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 uh, way you want. We briefly ran out of Grady's in my house yesterday, and I had uh -oh. to I had to like do the Nespresso thing. It was like traumatic. And I wasn't <laughs> it wasn't even sure quite how to how to deal with it because Grady's is so good. In any case, uh, treat yourself to a gourmet cup of coffee without stepping foot outside, all for less than a buck a cup. Are you ready to give it a swirl? Get twenty five percent off your first order at Grady's with promo code TPM. That's Grady's with promo code TPM. So uh David Kate, what is up, and who is our uh, extra special guest on this on this episode? Yes, hey Josh. Well, I'm very excited to uh, to have Alex Perrine join us today. Alex is a staff writer at the New Republic. He's the host of the New Republic's podcast, The Politics of Everything. I'm not just saying this; I've listened to it before we even knew you were coming on the show. I think 
I especially was kind of tuning into some of the earlier ones on climate change. That was kind of an early focus for you guys on the podcast. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, we did. That was one of our very first episodes. We've only been doing it about a year, so there's not a lot of backlog to catch up on. But <laughs> right. one, of our, one of our first ones was on climate change. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Alex. Appreciate it. Of course. It's my pleasure. We were talking just before we kind of pressed record that you had published a story that's that's made the rounds quite a bit in the last week or so, just under the wire of a separate Andrew Cuomo scandal. And the, the story you were focusing on, or the story that you wrote, focused on kind of the two sides of Andrew Cuomo. One is the TV character that Josh mentioned, who won an Emmy, I guess, maybe back in the fall. Oh, really? I didn't um, even remember that. Yeah, they gave yeah. him a special <laughs> Emmy for his for his COVID broadcast. Just yeah. for being awesome <laughs> in general. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I didn't I didn't realize. I didn't remember that. Exactly, yeah. Um, yeah, we all know the TV character, the kind of the one who was the adult in the room during the, the worst days of COVID and, you know, providing a counter to President Trump. But you also dug into the Andrew Cuomo, the newspaper character, you know, the Albany, um, is it the Albany Times? That's the paper uh, The there? Times Union, yeah. Times Union, yes. Yeah. Um, just kind of what a professional jerk he is, basically. And <laughs> like Josh says, you know, basically everyone in the press hates him. Yet, obviously, he does remain a popular force in New York politics. Um, you, that piece was kind of coming on the heels of a scandal over the undercounting of nursing home deaths from the coronavirus, um, like Cuomo just kind of being a general asshole to yelling at New York lawmakers that he'll destroy them, ruin their lives, all that kind of stuff. So tell us a little bit more about kind of what you've been thinking about Cuomo and how, um, how your thinking has changed now that we have a, a brand new kind of potentially much more threatening scandal to his political future. Yeah, um, uh, Josh was absolutely right to note how quickly this has happened, because I think like him, 10 days ago, you ask me the political future of Andrew Cuomo, I say, you know, whatever my feelings about the guy, a fourth term is more likely than not. <laughs> um, and when uh, uh, before the accusations of sexual harassment, the first sort of crack in the facade was the nursing home thing. And that was when I, that was the context in which I wrote my piece. It was not, um, <clears throat> not just that um, an investigation had uncovered a scandal involving his administration. That has happened a few times over the last 10 years. <laughs> it has usually exactly. not amounted to very much. And it doesn't matter. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, and like, oh, but, to, to, oh, but to, to correct one little thing Josh said, like everyone in the media hates this guy. I mean, I think Chris Cuomo might quibble with that, right? <laughs> that's actually right, one. Right. <laughs> and that's kind of like one um, part of his armor was that reporters at the Albany Times Union knew exactly what kind of politician he was. Um, but that story was less interesting to people who put together cable news and, and that sort of thing. That, or at least that story was less... Um, fit for the cable news style than the authoritative executive who's taking charge, coming in, being the adult in the room. Wouldn't uh, you, wouldn't you, Alex? Wouldn't you say that among reporters, though? I mean, obviously, like the New York Post is going to have its own complicated relationship with someone like Cuomo. But wouldn't you say that, like the reporters at the Times, like the New York Times, not the Times Union, were, like at the Daily News, the Post? Like, I, I feel like I, I was here. Okay, so here's the thing: I, I only over time got acclimated, even though I'd been living in New York for a long time, got acclimated to the state and the city's politics. Mm. And for me, at that point, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, something like that, uh, Andrew Cuomo was 
you know, Mario's son, who's, hey, he's governor now. That's great, you know, because I like Mario Cuomo, and, and I remember he worked for Clinton. That's awesome. And whenever I would, whenever he would come up in, in to, like, reporter colleagues who just in, in living in New York City, like, oh, that fucker. He sucks. <laughs> that dude sucks. What a, what a bully. What a, he sucks. And I'm like, whoa. Like, okay. Isn't it? So it's not just the Times Union, is it? Oh, no, no. I, you are absolutely right. Yeah. And I think it's in particular, it's people who worked um, on people who worked uh, on the state politics desk or the local politics desk in particular would have that feeling about him. And then that would, you know, especially papers like the Times, people move around so they could be on the national desk in a, in a month or two and still feel that way about Andrew Cuomo. Um, but right. I think that I think that's definitely the case where um, there was a sort of general... And in a way, it was this sort of knowledge of how he operates that these people, these insiders in the media had that I think they tried their best to get into the New York Times. Like the New York Times has a history of very good reporting about the Cuomo administration. But um, it was it was sort of hard to tell a story in a way that could compete with what I thought of as the television narrative. Um, where and, it's, and it was especially because, as you say, he kept cruising to reelection. And the other thing that he was aided by, not just his sort of TV savvy, was the fact that, um, you know, you could never paint the Democratic Party as standing up to him because they were scared to or unwilling to just because of how much power he wielded. And you sort of need and when you're doing political journalism, <clears throat> you need for just for like sort of the sake of making it newsworthy, you need to say, like, people in his own party are now standing up against him. And, you know, until de Blasio kind of did that and then kind of backtracked, um, you know, you, you could always just say, like, well, you know, the Republicans predictably say he's the worst. But even Republican complaints about him had much less bearing on reality than sort of liberal and Democratic complaints about him. Can I can I ask you one question about this? And this is something that I've been kind of confused about the 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 new sexual harassment scandal allegations are in a total, you know, set those aside. Those speak for themselves. With the with the nursing homes th- thing, there, there's two separate things. And one part of it I have never really understood. And that is, so th- there's this issue with the reporting. Right. And I guess the most generous version is there was an initial unintentional misreporting, but then when they found out it was wrong, they didn't they didn't fess up to it mm. and that i guess at least they say hey trump is going to beat us over the head so we just decided not to say mm. so but the original thing is this issue of a state order that if that basically that nursing homes had to take back patients with covid mm. if the, you know if they could do so safely right and i've never been quite clear why that is a scandal because this is in a this is in a in a period when the hospitals were overloaded and and if someone no longer needs hospital care they sort of have to go somewhere um i'm not saying it was a right decision but it's it's never been clear to me why this was a scandal. The other stuff's obviously scandals, but am I missing? Is there a part of that I'm missing, or what's the story there? I think the if and I I might be wrong on this, but I think the I think the order came in advance of the hospitals being overwhelmed, and the justification, in fact, was we need to stop the hospitals from being overwhelmed. Right. Um, and I think that the the political angle of it was that 
um, he was it was seen as being done on behalf of the hospitals, and he's sort of considered to be in the pocket of the hospitals, or at okay. least like their political benefactor. Got it. Um, and Got you could it. see okay. that later on with the with the. You know, there were complaints about and vaccine distribution is going reasonably well in New York. But you, there were complaints at the beginning that he took it out of the hands of the of the of the public or of the um, county health departments of health. So the county departments of health had a vaccine distribution plan. At the last minute, Cuomo steps in and says, "No, we're going to hand it to the hospitals." So it's, I think it was it was seen as part of this sort of political pattern right. of like okay. working for the hospitals. Understood. Oh, I was just going to bring up. There's another dynamic kind of in this scandal that you mentioned in your recent piece, Alex, that I'm interested in, which is since the second scandal, the sexual um, misconduct or assault allegations have kind of unraveled, uh, Cuomo has seemed to kind of tack to the, you know, there should be you know, supporting an investigation, I guess. Yeah. And then you have kind of the interesting dynamic of Letitia James being the one who had head up that investigation, who, as you mentioned in your piece, was kind of like you know, the Cuomo-endorsed establishment candidate when she yeah. ran for that position. So could you speak to that dynamic a little bit? And maybe, uh, like you mentioned, maybe he expected more loyalty out of her than he's ultimately gotten. You know, she yeah. was the one with the big report that kind of sparked anew the nursing home crisis as well. Yeah. And, to uh, you know, if you if you don't follow New York politics, Letitia James is the attorney general. Um, she was initially a member of the city council elected not as a Democrat, but as a member of the Working Families Party. And she was the first and I think maybe so far only um, Working Families Party only elected official in, in the city council. So she came from this sort of um, arm of the of the left that is not that you know it was critical of the democratic machine that was her political background she and then um you know she was a very popular politician in new york city something of a rising star <clears throat> when uh cuomo uh basically um decided that when eric schneiderman who had to uh, resign over sexual misconduct there was going to be a special election to replace him the attorney general um, there was, again, a, a sort of left reformer candidate, Zephyr Teachout, who had previously run against Cuomo, who a lot of these sort of left-wing groups were getting behind. And then uh, Letitia James wanted the job, too. And I think a lot of those same sort of left-leaning anti-machine types would have been perfectly happy with her candidacy, except that she took, not only did she sort of take the Cuomo endorsement and she um, took his much needed donors, um, he did so with the uh, with the requirement that she that she denounced the working family party um, endorsement, that she not seek it. And that she'd like say, you know, basically like it was like, you are aligned with me, like your star will rise with mine. And so she bristled a lot when people say, when people said at the, during the election then, and when people said, um, well, what happened to your independence? She got, she got mad. She was like, I'm not like, I'm not going to belong to Cuomo. Um, she, but you know, she made this deal. And I think the idea was, well, if she makes this deal, like she's going to be like all these other sort of politicians who know that Cuomo's, you know, off limits in, in Albany. <clears throat> so this was I mean, it was surprising that this came from her office when it, when it was a um, this report on on the undercounting of deaths came from uh, the attorney general's office. That's what made it sort of immediately a, a different kind of new scandal than the kind that Cuomo has been able to sort of wiggle his way out of in the past. It was uh, very, a very popular statewide elected 
um, Democrat who had been aligned with him saying like he had, his administration did, did something wrong. And, and when it comes now to the, when it comes to the uh, sexual harassment investigation, this is this is like the big sign that this is, things have changed. We're in totally new territory. Cuomo's first uh, thing that his office said he was willing to do was that he was all right. He said, we'll have a completely independent commission that uh, James will be in charge of along with this state judge who is widely seen as a Cuomo ally because she was appointed by him and, and has a history with him. And the it's it. This is a sort of another classic move by him to say it's going to be completely independent. But one of my political allies has veto power over the end result. It's basically he was like, we will do the Moreland Commission, which was an ethics commission that he started and then disbanded in his, in his first term. And James was James refused that offer. James did not roll over. She was like, no, you're going to refer it to my office and we're going to investigate it on our own. That's how we've done it in the past. And that's how we're going to do it. So I think that's that's what led in part all these other Democrats to say, oh, this is a new environment. We're allowed to do that now. And it was just a, a tsunami of Democrats who were waiting for someone to give the signal that it was okay to break from him, who were like, who are now thrilled to do so. But wasn't there, and again, this is my half knowledge of, of, of New York politics, the wing of New York state politics that is, you know, kind of uh, broadly associated with Zephyr, then you have kind of AOC and and that kind of new group of, of new members of the House representative, that whole kind of, you know, left progressive th- flank of the, of the Democratic Party. Were those people really holding back? I mean, those people have never held back with them. But I guess the point is that they kind of didn't matter in as much as they've always been against him in, on every front and it never mattered. So kind of their being against him now didn't yeah. seem any different kind of. I think, you know, what's it's actually, I think you can trace this back to, because I think like Cuomo and his people would have sort of laughed at the idea that what they thought matters. And electorally, that that sort of wing of the Democratic Party really struggled to have any, to win any power in New York politics for a long time, for a lot of reasons. Um, what you can, I think what you can almost like in a way what planted the seeds of this was the defeat of the IDC which was a, the uh um this group of democrats in the state senate who caucused with republicans um and um that's what you know that was sort of also what led Cuomo to, to do things like I'm going to pick this liberal this progressive champion Tish James to be my AG um things like that that's sort of what you know and and Cuomo would like frequently like make the case I'm the best the left can do. And then like, I'm going to, here are the, here are the left wing priorities I'm going to do this year. Like, here's what you get from me this year. That's kind of how he would win um, his, uh, you know, especially once that, that Republican majority went away. Um, So, so, uh, but when I say like the people were holding back, it's definitely like, it's not those sorts of politicians. It was, it was definitely like rank and file assembly members and, and, uh, and, you know, and, Mainly people in, in, in people in, in the state legislature who, you know, he controls the agenda up there. There's a real reason that they didn't want to become his critics for so long. Right, right, right. Well, it is fascinating just how fast. I mean, yeah, yeah. like I would say within a week, his not finishing his term and, you know, his yeah. his term went from. I mean, just preposterable unless, to unless he like in the Biden administration or something. Yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> to, unimaginable to like better than 50 50. I mean, I don't know where it is exactly now, but it's it's 
stunning, and I'm sure he is stunned. Yes, yeah. I, mean, I think I th- we haven't. I mean, he's been holed up. I don't. Think, I think he's never. He's never had to deal with something like this, and I can't imagine what he. Yeah, he's got to be shocked. I just saw. I just saw as we were talking, um, someone tweeted a a kind of a press release that he's doing one of his COVID briefings today. Oh wow, he is! And it was notable. I look closely. He's talking. I mean, yeah. he's talking about COVID. I mean, so it's yeah, not. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at first I was thinking, fuck, maybe he's going to like resign. But no, I mean, <laughs> is he taking sick- questions? Does it say? I have no idea. But I mean, again, uh, again, it just on its face, the text was just. Gonna update the state on COVID. Yeah, you know, and I, I feel it. like he, he hasn't done that in maybe like eight or nine days. Something right? like it's been that. Yeah. yeah, a pretty long yeah. stretch yeah. for him. I, I, and if you if you follow local politics, the the part of this that actually you have to be that you have to find funny is that Mayor De Blasio has been doing his briefings now, <laughs> and like <laughs> and like it, it, there a, a local reporter made this note this morning that I found very funny, which is that De Blasio for the like basically for the first time in his entire o- time in office as mayor has been showing up on time to his own press briefings. <laughs> I saw that too. Yeah, he's enjo- he's enjoying himself this week. <laughs> he, he really, he really is enjoying himself this week. Yeah. Well, Kate, maybe we can shift gears a little bit, talk about the kind of aftermath of the January 6th insurrection and some of the hearings that we've been covering, including today, you and I have stepped away a little bit from the coverage to uh, to record the pod. Today, we have Pentagon officials, FBI officials, kind of, you know, intelligence, um, kind of national security type officials, giving senators a kind of a briefing on or a hearing on the security lapses and failures and things like that. Tell us so far kind of what we've learned, if there's anything you feel like listeners should get caught up on and I don't know, just generally how the kind of post-insurrection accountability effort seems to be going. Yeah, I mean, I have so far, with the caveat that, you know, we we did leave to record this while it's still ongoing, but I found the hearing today to be kind of the least helpful so far of these post-January um, 6 hearings. Part of that is because I just think um, a lot of the people who are there are kind of in the sweet spot of being not high enough to have the answer to questions, or at least not high enough that they're able to kind of pass the buck to the people who are above them, um, but also not, you know, on the ground of the day, um, with the exception of the commander of the D.C. National Guard is there, um, and obviously questions about kind of the delayed activation, deployment of the Guard are still, you know, what, three hearings in. We've gotten very little clarity about it, and if in the hearings we have had so far, it's been mostly We've gotten contradictory reports of who called, who, when. Um, And so far, very little of it has kind of touched on the top of the chain of command, um, which is where a lot of the problems uh, or a lot of the delay seems to lay there. Um, And so having the commander today, we're starting to kind of... It's like every hearing we've been getting links in the chain of the D.C. National Guard authorization, and he's the highest link we've had so far. So that's kind of pushing most of the problems above him. And there's, you know, only only about three guys ahead of him in the chain of command leading up to the president. So it's like we're inching closer. But the problem with that chain of command, um, well, there's a lot of problems and people have used it as like an argument for D.C. statehood and everything. But part of the problem is every time you have these kind of isolated links in the chain, it's really easy for them to shift the burden of responsibility to other links in the chain who aren't there. Um, so that's kind of a way that these hearings have been ineffective and that it's just like really hard to kind of pin down what the truth is. Instead, we have like three contradictory accounts 
um, of what happened. But yeah, this one has been like pretty, not had a lot of, I don't know that the others had bombshell moments per se, but um, you know, it's just been kind of a lot of trying to pin down the timeline. Um, and you know, we haven't really heard anything that would be most interesting about, you know, where Trump was during this or what his role was in the slow deployment. So we're still kind of trucking along, getting one little nugget of new information at a time. Yeah. I'm curious, this is kind of a question for anyone. If, you know, we're still waiting on the, the January 6th commission to come together. We haven't had a lot of movement on that since I guess we last spoke, Kate. But um, is that kind of the, the best case scenario for actually getting to the bottom of what happened and I, you know, trying to learn lessons from it or, you know, are these hearings effective at all? I'm just curious, anyone's thoughts on that? I mean, I've been doing some reporting on the commission and a big theme that's kind of emerged is that if Republicans want to sink it, they can basically, um, even with this, the drafted kind of proposal, the split of the commission, which would give Democrats, uh, seven commissioners to a point, including the chair, and then Republicans, four commissioners to a point, there's really nothing to stop the Republicans from picking, you know, like the firebrand, very pro-Trumpy kind of people. Um, and if they were to do that, you know, my, it would be, you know, kind of dead of, on arrival in the way that everybody holds up the 9-11 commission as like the gold standard of this, because it was bipartisan and you had uh, people who were you know, on the whole, pretty invested in the fact-finding mission. Um, and you always had a, a Democratic and a Republican commissioner appear in media together as a pair. Um, and so, you know, it seems to me that if they end up going with all firebrands, it would be harder to achieve any kind of, um, kind of across-the-spectrum credibility like that. But um, isn't, now, isn't, isn't yeah. the point of a commission to figure out what happened? I mean, it seems to, this is, I, I, I've been a little, look, ideally, you really, I mean, the, the sort of the point of doing these commissions is you kind of, you know, all the national stakeholders, let's get together, let's agree so it has a lot of buy-in and all that kind of stuff. That really is the ideal, but again, the Republicans were behind what you're investigating. So there's a kind of a basic structural problem right there. I mean, you know. Bin Laden didn't appoint anybody to the 9-11 commission. That would have been awkward. So I, I guess I'm, I'm confused by and resist the idea that, that it's dead on arrival because it's a given to me that, that, that the Republicans will try to sabotage it. I mean, how could they not? Their leader did it. So, and, and, and so the, the key to me, I mean, yes, you're going to have the, whoever the Republican you know, co-chair or whatever, you know, whatever that person, the lead Republican is going to be going on Hannity every night and, and, and whining about it. But it seems to me what you, the, the point is to figure out what happened and then get that out and whatever. So why isn't, why isn't that more the focus? Well, I, okay. Dead on arrival from the vantage point of the 9-11 commission and that the commission will produce a report that is widely accepted by everyone that not undermined by some of the members of the commission, that kind of way. I mean, you're right. Even if, if McConnell and McCarthy end up, you know, putting Hannity on the commission, the democratic members of the commission will still, you know, do a fact finding mission and release a report and everything. But, you know, then it's just a different dynamic. Then you're going to have a report that will only be accepted by half the aisle. Um, 
that is, you know, undermined with a minority report from the other people. And, you know, and maybe that that's just the best you can do. I was just looking this up to make sure mm -hmm. I had this correct. <clears throat> There's precedent precedent for this, basically, with the commission on the financial crisis. The financial crisis inquiry was a bipartisan commission where the report came with a dissenting report from every Republican member. But <laughs> the, actual, the, the actual report the Democrats produced, as far as I know, was received fairly well by people who, who read it. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that might be the case that we're looking at. Um, I just think, you know, there have been kind of a lot of pieces from the the people who led the commission before um, being like, you know, it must be bipartisan and, and it must be good faith by all. But yeah, I mean, I think it's the difference between having a big dispute on kind of the accountability section of the commission's work and then having a dispute over everything. My feeling is that it really shouldn't be hard. And if, if Democrats wanted to like, you know, be super aggressive about it, and, and because what they wanted to be bipartisan just sort of for the sake of saying like for the sake of getting everyone to accept the end result. But we know that's impossible in this political landscape. It would be easiest thing in the world to make a bipartisan commission where Pelosi appoints all the Republicans, you know, like Democrats don't actually have trouble finding, you know, H.W. Bush era Republicans that are that they can find to agree with them on things. Well, I'm, I'm curious. I had is it being treated as a given that the members will need to be all serving members of Congress, or is that not? I think I mean, it's obviously a given that, that they won't be. Will not that none will. Okay, right. It's it's interesting because that I mean I I almost guarantee you that that even if you like Liz Cheney's not going to go on the commission, right? She's she's too smart for that, and it's almost you know so anybody it would have to be if you did choose them, it would have to be people with no ambitions for any Republicans who are already cashed out, basically, if not yeah. have become Democrats, because you're dead to anybody if you don't go on there. But but again, I, I th that's why I've been sort of like, I mean, I get what they're trying to do, sort of, and go through the motions, but I, I've been... I've been a little bewildered and disappointed that we're even entertaining, like, oh, McConnell says, no way. Like, who gives a fuck what he says? You're the majority, so you make the commission. You don't need a, any buy-in. You just do it. And that's the end of the story. And and it, 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 the whole thing is sort of... It's just a it's just a replay with slightly different subject matter and players to like the COVID relief bill with McConnell saying, oh, this isn't bipartisan. I'm like, OK, no kidding. Like you're going to say whatever, whatever, you know. So I don't know. It just uh, I, I wish they weren't even entertaining this at some level. Just go ahead and do it. Yeah, well, maybe that's a good a good segue to uh, one of our favorite topics of late, talking about the filibuster, because just before we came on today, um, you know, there's reporting that Biden has agreed to kind of lower the threshold for cutoff of, of relief checks. This is something, you know, I think Manchin was was pushing for other moderate Democrats, um, you know, to secure the votes to, I guess, basically get the relief bill through the Senate. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I think the cutoff will be like 80,000 maybe for individuals, 160 or something for um, for households. But Alex, you've been writing about this a little bit lately. Kind of what's your what's your prediction for the future of the filibuster, um, the cinema mansion dynamic duo that uh, I guess is kind of standing in the way so far? Uh, it's it's hard to predict. It's it's you know, because the thing about cinema and mansion cinema in particular that they tell you we will never, ever change our minds on the filibuster, ever. <laughs> uh, but you can't get a sense of them from, like, 
okay, what do you want to actually do in Congress? You know, you ask them, what do you, what did you, what do you want to actually do? What do you want to get passed this year? And you, what you hear is like, I want to restore bipartisanship. You know, Manchin, Manchin will sometimes say rural broadband. All right, sure. Maybe you can get 10 Republican votes for rural <laughs> broadband. But like cinema doesn't even seem to have an agenda. So when it comes to like, you could, if you could make the case to these moderates that, well, look, these are your political priorities. Only way they're getting through is if we change the filibuster. Then I could see, I, then I would say they're going to change the filibuster. But what it comes down to is like, do those two want to actually accomplish something or not? I don't. Well, I don't think. I don't think. And Josh and I were just talking before we were recording a little bit about this. But, um, <clears throat> you know, there. I think there is some optimism that the filibuster will be changed sooner rather than never. Yeah, there. We were just. We, we were just talking about this. And one. What, what. What I mentioned to Alex is that we. Uh, we did a briefing um, uh, a few weeks ago with. Uh, Adam Jenelson, a former uh, Senate staffer, who's like a big filibuster activist. Um, and I was surprised because you look at you look at Manchin saying like, dude, fuck it. I love the filibuster and it's never going away ever. And Cinema saying the same thing. And you kind of think, man, <laughs> where are we going here? This is like there seems to be no hope. But but I was surprised that he was like, uh, you know. I'm going to play this out. None of us thought it was going to come over over the you know relief bill. We're going to have to kind of have bills come up, have it be demonstrated that the Republicans are basically going to veto, you know, have a filibuster veto on everything. Play this out into the year until we and 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 basically they seem the people who really work this issue seem relatively optimistic that we're going to get some movement. And Alex, it seems like you're picking up. Yeah. Similar. I, th I think so. And I think the way it's going to happen is that they're going to position it as saving the filibuster. And this is, this, I haven't, I'm not, I'm not like keyed in enough to know if this is like, I'm, this is not from talking to anyone. This is just my impression. Um, and there's a lot of reforms you could do that basically make it the case that 50 votes plus one can get things passed, that you could still include delay for debate or all these other ways to sort of ratchet that 60 vote requirement down to make it not a veto point. Because when Manchin talks about preserving the filibuster, he always <clears throat> the justification is always like, we got to protect the minority's right to debate. Debating will make these bills better. The filibuster right. is always justified with debate. So there's like, you can, the ideal outcome here is like, uh, uh, is Chuck Schumer saying, look, we saved the filibuster and we're passing HR1 with 51 votes. Right. You know? <laughs> right. Um, so then it becomes a question of like, how attached are those two or, and the other senators who are less vocal about it. How attached yeah. are they to the, how attached are they to the sixty vote requirement as opposed to not wanting to get bad headlines for killing the filibuster? Well, it's interesting to me that I have I mean I have thought for a long time that I, I can see a role for a different kind of filibuster and and so two two thoughts on this one is that that maybe it's something like this. So one party can't just come in, vote something, and it's done, you know, kind of really quickly. But there's some time limit. Like you can, you know, the, the other parliaments have, have used to have some version of this with multiple readings of a bill. It's somewhat similar that you just, you know, slow it down a bit. Like, so let's think it over. Like, and, and that's... 
That's one thing, as long as there's some time limit, A. And then the other thing, and this is what gets complicated and and with people's kind of, you know, kind of Hollywood fantasies of what the filibuster was, that that you don't that all the exertion is on has to be done by the majority. Yeah. All totally. the stuff. And and so people keep you see this on, you know, people who are not uh, you know, kind of insiders saying this a lot, kind of, why don't they do it like the old days? We yeah. have to get up and talk. And the way that the current filibuster is structured is you don't have to do anything. You just have no. to kind of, you know, you like kind send of... Send an email, don't you? You're like, yeah, send an email <laughs> kind of saying, we're going to stop it. And then, it, and so it kind of, it slows everything down, but you don't have to do anything. And and critically, you don't have to be on cameras. Yeah. So you kind of just, you just sl- you just stop everything. I mean, to me, something as simple as saying, "Okay, you can have the filibuster," but that means at any moment you got to mobilize forty votes. Yeah, come into the Senate and be there to say no. Yeah, and I've even seen that, that exact, yeah. yeah, yeah, and even that, even if it were absolute, even if even if there were no time limit, you would that would make it public. And right. it would be hard. Everybody, even that dude who's in Cancun, he's got to come, <laughs> right? So it and it would put it would make it visible. The kind of like wow, they tried to get the they 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 just tried to get a minimum wage again, and the Republicans once again, they all got together and said no. Right. And and even that would be, I think that would change the dynamics, pretty, pretty significantly. But I'm yeah. interested that again, I, I, I'm. If it if it weren't if it weren't for people who know more than I do being somewhat optimistic and not and not people who I think are idiots, right? People who are pretty hard boiled and I really think they've got the right values and know what they're talking about. They seem kind of optimistic, which me which leaves me kind of optimistic or more optimistic than I would be. Here's one interesting data point, which is that a longtime defender of the filibuster in the Senate recently came out against it, and that's Bernie Sanders. He, up until I think just the other day, even if he always said he had a plan to get around it, if elected president, he never said he would eliminate it. And he kind of just came out and said it the other day. And that's like, that's, that's one Senator moving on that issue. And, and, and he, and he wasn't any sort of reform, just like this is, it's done, get rid of it. I think he was, it was just a tweet, but I think he just said it's time to eliminate it. I I might have to double check, but I think he just said that. Yeah. I mean, just say Go ahead. Go, you, you go ahead, Kate. Oh, I was just going to add, you know, obviously there's a lot of kind of tea leaf reading and like parsing every statement Cinema and Manchin make, you know, to the point of its death where it's like, well, this apostrophe might indicate some squishiness. <laughs> but, you know, one interesting thing on this is we had a reader send in to us kind of the form filibuster letter that uh, Cinema's office has been I assume sending everybody who writes in about the filibuster and it kind of is like a very simplified kind of lacking some context about the filibuster's use by, you know, segregationists, but a history of the filibuster. And, you know, something that did stand out to me, even in this kind of like anodyne letter was there is a, you know, she devotes like a couple paragraphs to kind of the death of the talking filibuster, basically, which is what we're talking about, the the forcing the people who are filibustering the bill to get on the floor and, um, you know, hold hold the time. 
And that, you know, again, tea leaf reading, we're all inclined to try to like really read into what these people are saying, but you know, that could be somewhat of a data point in the direction of, you know, it would allow both Manchin to be yelling at reporters, Jesus Christ, I'm never gonna abolish the filibuster with, you know, his other statements about my number one priority is ensuring that Biden has a successful presidency in a way that those two things have been very hard to square up yeah. until this point. Well, what a, look, the issue of substance here is we need to bash Kirsten Cinema because she, <laughs> she is so full of shit that it, that it is beyond all. I mean, look, Joe Manchin is kind of an old guy. I think he's over 70. He's been around forever. He is absolutely the only Democrat who will ever be elected to the Senate in, from West Virginia in the history of time ever. And he's, for very substantive, if not good reasons, he's very pro-fossil fuels, all these kind of, I mean, he comes to it, it's not surprising that he's kind of there all, for yeah. all these reasons. And Kirsten Cinema, I mean, Jesus Christ, she was like, she, she was like the Green Party spokesperson, I think for Nader yeah, in Arizona yeah. in 2000, until like three days ago, she was, she was... I don't know if she was left wing exactly, but she certainly wasn't this. And she comes from a trending purple state. She's got a colleague who's going to be up for election next year. And if the whole Democratic Party crashes and burns, he'll be toast. And this is just like 100 percent preening. I don't know what. It's yeah. so bizarre. At least, like I said, Manchin comes to it with some logic. Yeah. I I I I wrote and you know, as a sort of longtime critic of of self-important Senate moderates, um, I I wrote a, I wrote basically a defense of Manchin a while ago that made some of these very similar points, especially because his political history shows um, he will do he will you know vocally separate himself from the party often on things of no substance, <laughs> like um, like Nira Tandon exactly, and I'm not and Nira like yeah. her personally, but this is not. Neera Tandon wasn't going to, yeah, it was, yeah. was not going to help the people of, of West Virginia. Look, West exactly. Virginia is ride or die on the OMB. It's all they talk <laughs> about there. <laughs> but, you know, when it, I, but the thing I, one, one moment I, I described as sort of uh, explaining who Manchin is as a politician, which I've, I found it very funny, but it, it seems to work, is that he voted to, in the first impeachment, he voted to impeach Trump. And a month later, was saying was suggesting he was open to endorsing Trump's reelection. <laughs> he, was like, he was like, "Well, you know, I'm not decided yet. You know, Trump could right. still he still might win me over, and like maybe that drives some Democrats nuts." But I'm like, "That's that's a senator who's good at politics, right there." Yeah. He voted to he voted to remove the guy from office, and then talking to the reporters back home in his state that goes you know, plus 40 Trump. He's like, ah, you know, president might, might win me over still. Yeah. And, that, that's and, and as you say, you know, talk is cheap. Who yeah. cares what he says to a, a reporter? It's, and, and I think that's right. And, and <clears throat> again, to, as part of the mansion love fest, because of that history and because he has, he, he's never torpedoed anything. No, exactly. Not on I, when other people, you know, maybe when there were 10 other Democrats, but he's never really torpedoed anything. And, and because of his history over the last, I don't know how long he's been, you know, 15, 20 years or something like that, when he does something, it's generally like, I figure you need to do that to remain senator. So yeah. like, okay, yeah. mm -hmm. you know, with Ed, with cinema. No, you're totally oh right. Oh, my God.
Yeah, and it's like with, I I have I sometimes just describe her as like just an, uh, an agent of chaos. I I, tr- <laughs> I truly think that she, like, it's hard to say what her political core is, and she does just sometimes seem to like being unpredictable for the sake of it. And um, I understand that maybe she's just trying to establish a McCain esque maverick brand, but um, like you say, Arizona is a purple state that. You don't need a Democrat who acts like that to keep a seat like that. I don't think. Yeah, exactly. It just doesn't. It it just doesn't add up. And you know, she's not going to be like, she she's. I don't even know who the left Senate Democrat is. She's not going to be Sanders. Get that. But this is like. I mean, even I expect Manchin to be saying like, "Cinema, what what is your problem? Like, what what's gotten into you? What what you know? It's it's just it's just crazy. Anyway. Well, and the other pots. part of cinema that I is weird to me is how. She is like somewhat press shy. She usually doesn't, um, you know, like Manchin is kind of of the more, you know, like I'm in the hill pool. He's talking to reporters pretty much every time he walks through the hallways. Like, and there are just not nearly as many clips from cinema. And she kind of likes to keep her, you know, she's pretty terse when she does say things. There's just, she doesn't, with the exception of that um, dangerous creature t-shirt she wore on the Senate the other day, there, she doesn't seem to really like relish the glow of the spotlight in the same way that Manchin does. You know, like Manchin, um, people started calling him Senate Majority Leader and things like that. And, you know, he says there's just color coming in about how he's kind of, you know, says hi to everybody on and off the floor. Everyone's looking to make time with Manchin. And like it does not seem to be the similar dynamic with cinema. Um, it's just another part of this that is interesting to me, which is, you know, I can see someone who's super attention hungry kind of taking the position that she's taking because it it just gets you, people want to talk to you and know what you're thinking and who you're going to vote for. But, you know, she doesn't really seem to at least go looking for that as much as other senators do. I, I, I spoke with someone who used to work for her and who is a fan of hers. And this person was saying, she's just not a people person. I don't know if she's kind yeah. of an introvert or whatever, but you can tell Manchin, it's that kind of glad hand, you know, that yeah, kind of, that's a, yeah, totally. it's a certain kind of politician who just relishes that stuff, chatted up with the press, kind of, you know, you know, backslapping and all that kind of stuff. And I think it, even though that's obviously going to, uh, present differently for someone who's 30 years younger a woman not a man mm-hmm. she's just not that not that person yeah right well maybe that's a good place to leave it for today well uh alex thanks for coming by man yeah it was a pleasure this was really enjo- you know it's funny that we 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 have this kind of ongoing uh uh host debate because sometimes uh Sometimes when you have a guest, it's kind of like everybody's feeling like it should be an interview, and it's like oh, every everything is oh, kind yeah. of like. But this is great. <laughs> I feel like you're just like part of the crew. I've I've, I've really enjoyed it. So I hope I hope you'll come back. It was really uh, yeah, that, that a was, lot that of was, fun. That was really fun. I'd be happy to come back. All right. So uh, let me remind everybody that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. If you're ready to give it a try, you can get 25% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. All right. Later, folks. Thanks, Thanks, Alex. Later. Later. Bye. Bye.